Okay. For many of you, you know, especially listeners around my age, the first time you may have heard of the term Rainmaker was when the film The Rainmaker, written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, was released in 1997, or when the book the movie was based off of, written by John Grisham, was published in 1995. By definition, a rainmaker is an individual who generates an unusually high amount of revenue for an organization by bringing new clients and new business to the company. Rainmakers outperform others in the organization through their ability to bring in new ventures, and their contributions are considered critical to the success of the business. Welcome to episode 171 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown speaker, author, and networking coach. And today, I am joined by Matt Dixon, founding partner of DCM Insights and co-author of the groundbreaking article in the most recent issue of Harvard Business Review titled, What Rainmakers Do Differently. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. The subtitle of the article, What Rainmakers Do Differently, is Business Development at Professional Services Firms is Outdated. Here's what works now. And I couldn't agree more. Business development is outdated. I work with a number of firms who want to improve their business development activities and identify who within the office might have the secret sauce or the it factor to become a successful door seller or a rainmaker, if you prefer. Well, lucky for us, our guest and his firm has done the heavy lifting, conducting research that has revealed the five distinct profiles that define how all partners approach business development. Research that further reveals that only one of these profiles has a positive impact on the performance and revenue of their company and that only 22% of the people possess the characteristics that make up this rainmaker profile. I bet you're curious to know what the characteristics of this profile are. So without further ado, let's welcome Matt to the podcast. Hey, Julie, how you doing? Thank you for having me. Yeah. First, I want to thank you and your co-authors, Ted, Rory, and Karen, for this research, which is so in-depth and so eye-opening. And as I mentioned in the article, like, the five profiles that you've discovered, like how did you decide that you wanted to conduct this research? This was what you wanted to spend a chunk of your time on. Yeah, it was, it's kind of an interesting uh, background story, uh, Julie. So I, my background and as well as uh, uh, Karen and Ted, uh, we kind of grew up as researchers at a company called CEB, which is now part of Gartner Group. And we were all part of the business to business sales practice. So we were serving chief sales officers chief revenue officers, heads of sales, effectiveness, sales enablement, you know, uh, all the all the industries where sales is not a four-letter word. So it's basically like one minus professional services um, or, finan- you know, financial services as well. So we really focus on um, serving heads of sales in software, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, logistics, uh, et cetera. Uh, we'd spent probably 20 plus years studying what great business-to-business sellers do, star sellers do differently. We wrote a number of books on it, a number of HBR articles. And one of the things I learned really quickly 
uh, is that uh, the doer seller world is quite different. I remember actually remember a an experience where I presented some of our work from uh, a book we wrote called The Challenger Sale, uh, which was very popular in business to business sales. And I was called into um, a large consulting firm to present uh, the findings at the partner retreat. Uh, this is going back like a decade. And um, you know, two thirds of the way through my presentation, the managing partner kind of stood up and, and called time out and asked me to stop talking, which was a little bit unsettling. Um, and I said, you know, I was going to take questions at the end, but please, you're you're paying the bills, so go ahead. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, you keep using this term sales, and you're talking about salespeople and selling, and um, you know, all this stuff. And what you need to understand is that at our firm, we actually don't sell. We don't use that term internally. It's not what we do. And um, I, I said back uh, in response that um, let's stipulate to the fact that there's a mysterious process by which the client's money ends up in your firm's bank account, and we're going to call it sales for the next 15 minutes. I can just finish up my presentation. And everyone had a good laugh, but it did, as I delved into it, and I kind of continued to have these experiences when I was called in by you know, law firms, accounting firms, investment banks, um, wealth uh, advisory firms, um, PR firms, executive search um, uh, partnerships that this doer-seller world is quite different. Um, a lot of things we talk about in our previous work is how you need to deliver challenging sales messages that lead to your company's product. But what if you are the product, right? If the product is your own advisory skills as a partner in a professional services firm, that's a very different uh, ball of wax. And then, you know, furthermore, it, as you know very well, um, partners in professional services, it's look, it's tough to be a good salesperson when sales is your full-time job. Um, and we've learned that over you know 20 plus years of studying great salespeople, it's even harder where sales is a part-time job and mm -hmm. you've got to be responsible for generating the business with your clients and professional services and then executing it with your team yeah. is a very, very different motion um, that puts a lot of pressure on partners. So I always had a sort of a um, uh, kind of back pocket uh, kind of curiosity or or study idea to go out and do a lot of what we've done in B2B sales, but a a sort of bespoke clean sheet of paper, new study of the doer-seller world. Um, fast forward to when we founded our company um, uh, two years ago, DCM Insights. Uh, one of our partners uh, is a guy named Rory Channer. Rory actually spent um, four years as chief, chief business development officer at a big law firm, uh, McDermott, Will & Emery, uh, an Amalot 50 firm. And at the time, I had left CB, and I, he was a former CB guy too. He actually hired me. I was working at Corn Ferry at the time running their sales effectiveness consulting practice, he hired me and my team to come in and study what their top rainmakers were doing at McDermott. So it was our first time ever studying doer sellers, you know, putting aside everything we know about B2B sales, but looking at doer sellers as kind of a unique uh, breed, a unique population. And we found some interesting things in that study um, that just, again, further um, piqued my curiosity around what we might find if we did a broader study. So um, we founded our company two years ago, um, and we partnered with uh, Intap, who, as uh, many of your listeners know, is a big uh, cloud provider to professional and financial services uh, firms. And Intap agreed to underwrite a large global study of doer sellers. Uh, so we um, we embarked on that probably about a year and nine months ago. Um, we scoped out the study. We started recruiting firms to participate. And as you know from the article. Uh, we got uh, 23 firms, global firms, and 1,800 partners to actually uh, complete the study. Um, we didn't get any hate mail from partners, but it was a pretty <laughs> long study. But it was a long survey. The, the thing, we got a lot of responses from folks saying um, this was a really hard survey to fill out. It wasn't a simple check the box kind of you can blow through it really quickly. Yeah. 
there were kind of forced trade-off questions. It really forced partners to think very critically about how they engage clients, how they spend their time, um, what tools and resources they use, how they pitch for a business, et cetera. Um, it, it forced a lot of introspection, I think, on the part of the respondents. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. What I, I thought one of the great points of this article was a problem in business that it pointed out, which is yeah. that most businesses believe, hey, you do really good work. And your clients will keep coming back to you. But your research showed that there's a shift in the loyalty of clients. Like, yeah. And so the shift is happening and you're you're prospecting that it's going to get worse. The shift in loyalty is going to get worse. So, yeah, we actually as part of the study, we actually collected um, or we we organized a panel of 100 C-level executives. So these are these are executives, big companies that have, you know, individually decades of experience hiring law firms and accounting firms yeah. and investment banks and search consultants and management consultants and the like. And so if you add it all up, it was like thousands of years of buying experience with professional services firms and partners. And we asked them uh, a series of questions, but one of the most revealing ones was, you know, if you had a new need that arose and provided the firm you're working with right now had done good work for you in the past, would you be inclined to just hire them again? Would you just go back to the well, in other words, or automatically mm-hmm. go back to that firm? We asked them to think about what the response would have been five years ago, what it would be today, and then what it would be five years from now. And these respondents, uh, the responses came back were pretty eye-opening. Um, Seventy, um, Nearly three quarters, it was like 73% of respondents said five years ago, yeah, I would just go back to those same firms. So this was you know, a, a time where professional services purchasing was not really the domain of procurement. It wasn't highly formalized. Um, and, uh, you know, senior executives could kind of put their thumb on the scale for the firm or partner they right. really preferred. And maybe where they had a personal relationship or they'd gone to law school together with somebody or business school or worked together with the partner there um, who's, uh, uh, you know, pursuing the business. Today, that number is uh, around half. So about 53% of respondents said, yeah, we would go back to the same firms. Thinking out five years from now, it's only about a third. It's a slightly more. It's thirty-seven percent, and so this really is exactly what you're talking about, Julie. It's a degradation in the stickiness of our client relationships. Um, it is a more competitive environment. We interviewed a lot of these C-level decision makers as part of this research, and what we heard um, was pretty astounding. Many of them said, "Look, in the past, you know, nobody really cared where, you know, which law firm I hired, which consulting firm I went with. I could put my thumb on the scale. No big deal. It was a black box. Today, everything is competitive. Everything is a formal yeah. pursuit. Procurement is involved. And, you know, for um, fiduciary, ethical, uh, legal reasons, I cannot be seen as putting my thumb on the scale. That's actually, we had people tell us, look, I, if I have a personal relationship with the partner, I will recuse myself from the purchase decision. And we had CFOs and CHROs and GCs and heads of M&A telling us, you know, we are doing our firm and our shareholders, our stakeholders, our employees a disservice if we don't competitively bid out each piece of business because we owe it to ourselves to hear what everybody has to say about our problems and our needs. And, it, you know, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot if we just go back to the same partners we've always used. We need to cast that broad net, which then means the door is open for you as a partner to lose that you know, long-time client relationship because they're bidding it out. What would be an interesting follow-up study to this is in five years when they, when client loyalty is down to 30, you know, 33%, 
if people are still as happy or if they wished that they had gone back to their previous providers. Interesting. Yeah, that is an that is an interesting question. Will that all that shopping around actually benefit clients, you know, or will they right. feel like they've missed something because they've right. not gone back to the the providers who really know them and their firms and their teams very well? Uh, that that is a really interesting uh question. But I you know what's what's so interesting is when we talk to partners, a I would say the vast majority of partners are very frightened by this prospect. They say mm-hmm. this is this is not good for me, and it's exactly for the reasons you just articulated, Julie. I've grown up in a world where if you did good work, you you didn't have to compete for the next piece of business. The client just yeah. came back to you for you know the next consulting engagement, the next legal matter, the next uh, tax you know advisory piece of business. Yep. They would just come back to you automatically. So it's frightening for the majority of uh, partners. But there's a small segment of partners who are pretty excited about this. They say, look. There are clients that I'm looking to get in with. Uh, yeah. Stata, I think from uh, Russell Reynolds, found um, that a huge percent, I think 20 to 30 percent of Fortune 500 GCs are going to retire in the next like five years. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. You know, it's going to put $60 billion of outside counsel spend up for grabs. And so it, these, you know, rainmakers, these top performers are like, yeah. this is great. And in, in these firms, will, these companies will not automatically go back to the firms they've used for years and years and years. There, the door is now open. I'm going to get an invitation to compete for it, and I might win some of these. So they're pretty, they're pretty energized by this prospect. Yeah, it's funny. I do a lot of college and university lecturing on networking and business development, and one of the first things I say to them is like, "Do you think everybody else in this room is a dumbass besides you? Like, being good at your job is the barrier to entry. Now let's talk about all the things that That's are going to help you stand Tables. out." Yeah, yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, your research found five distinct. Yes. Profiles, which in my in my experience in working business to business were spot on. So I want to dive into them a little bit. That so the for the listeners, the five distinct profiles are the expert, the confidant, the debater, the realist, and the activator. Mm -hmm. And one of these is the rainmaker profile. Yep. So let's examine a a little bit of each of them because I think people will be like, "Yes, I know who that person is in my firm. Yes, I am that person in my firm." Um. So great. Let's start with the expert, because I think this is what everybody strives to be. Yes. Like, I'll just be an expert in the field and everybody will come to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, you're exactly right. Um, so well, a couple of thoughts just as I go through these, I think one is, Julia, right. The first thing that people do is they think about themselves um, and then they think about their colleagues and then they think about the, in their firm who are the top, some of the top rainmakers. Yeah. Um, where do the people you think are kind of doing it wrong? Where, what profiles they go into? If you're a firm leader, you're starting to think about skylines. Like where are we overweighted and underweighted? Mm-hmm. Um, one, a couple of cautionary points. One, I would say every single one of the 1800 partners had a combination of all five. However, okay. uh, statistically, every single one of them majored in one of those five. Yeah. We all spike in one, right? But people are complicated and partners in professional services are especially complicated people. So, they, mm-hmm. so you know, this is, um, it's a messy, messy business. The other thing I would tell you is that, um, and this almost, I always say this up front, but it almost always comes back as a question that we didn't study personality. And I think when yeah. pe- when we go through this, sometimes people say, well, this feels like you're born with it, right? It feels like you, you just, you have that kind of personality that would put you in one of these profiles. We studied uh, behavior, skills, time spent characteristics, use of tools and resources, uh, techniques. So these are things that with the right training, coaching, um, and support from the firm, every partner can get better at. Now, why a partner ends up in any of these five is probably partly because of their personality and what they're comfortable with. But 
um, the profiles themselves did not have personality-based characteristics to okay. them, uh, if that makes sense. So back to your question. So the expert uh, first profile here, um, and, and sorry, one more, one more piece of background. So the way we did not, I, this is really important. We didn't invent these um, these profiles. So this is okay. a, use a technique called factor analysis. Factor analysis looks at a large data set. It washes out the insignificant variables. Then it isolates the significant ones. And typically in a large model, uh, the data ends up clumping into groups. And mm -hmm. those groups move up and down in the model together. So if you have something in the bucket, you tend to have the other things. If you lack something, you tend not to have the other things. We've used this technique in the past. I mentioned the challenger sale research in B2B sales. Um, and this is the second time we've uh, deployed this. Um, and I actually think it worked better in professional services than in the B2B sales study we did. So the first one um, that the model identified is the expert. The expert, I would describe as a reluctant business developer. So this is the person who would tell you, look, Julia, I didn't go to law school to be a salesperson, right? Or, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't you know, get my degree in, uh, in tax accounting to be a salesperson. But we all know when you make partner in a firm, you're expected to bring in the business, not just execute on the business as part yep. of the job. But because they are reluctant and, and arguably uncomfortable with business development, they take a very reactive order taker approach to business development, meaning they try to signal to the market, if you are looking for, let's say, an, like a, an IP litigation expert in pharma, or if you are looking for an M&A advisor uh, in uh, consumer packaged goods, I am your person. So the way they signal to the outside market is through thought leadership. Um, yep. They do a lot of publishing. They do a lot of speaking at conferences. Yeah. They serve yeah. on industry panels and things like that. And what they're hoping is that if a client has a need that aligns with their expertise, the client will pick up the phone and call or they send an yeah. email and say, hey, Julie, we got a, you know, I, we found you in our search for an IP litigation expert in pharma. We have a matter coming up. We could use your uh, advice on this. Now, what that means in practical terms is that by the time the client has found you, they probably found several other people who also claim to be an expert because nobody, like you said, there are not a lot of dummies out there. And there are a lot of people who claim to be experts in, in very, very specific niche areas. Nobody yeah. owns a domain unto themselves. And so they get pulled into a lot of competitive bids. So that's our first uh, profile is, okay. the, is the expert. The second profile is the confidant. Correct. Now, the confidant, the confidant, I think the best way to think of them is as the classic kind of old school trusted advisor. And what I mean by that is they now, and this is probably not to the letter of the book or ha as it's described by the, the creators of that model, but rather the way that it's interpreted by partners in professional and financial services. Um, meaning what they do is they, they kind of find a small group of clients, maybe three to four key clients. They kind of bear hug those clients. <laughs> they... They bend over backwards for them. Yep. Many of these clients are clients that they had pre-existing relationships with. So we went to law school together, went to business yep. school together. We worked in the corporate development um, uh, department of a Fortune 500 firm together. Now I am the partner and you are my client. Um, so these are longstanding relationships they have. They bend over backwards for these clients. They deliver very client-centric, a very client-centric experience. They deliver a great work product. Um, and their mindset is, if I do all those things, what I'm effectively doing is building a moat around this client that makes it impossible for anybody else to steal the yeah. relationship. And I should be good. If next time the client needs help, they're going to come to me automatically. It shouldn't be a competitive pursuit. I, and so I basically build these ATM machines and then I stand by it and collect the money, right? Now, one of the other uh, interesting rubs about the confidant is because they've invested so deeply in these relationships and because they cannot afford to have any of them um, uh, go south or go sideways they don't share those relationships with yeah. their colleagues internally. So they yeah. don't collaborate. They don't make referrals. I had one uh, uh, chief marketing officer of a big accounting firm said, 
I know these people. These are the people who call me up every month and say, why did my client get the firm newsletter without my permission? Like, how did they even get the client's email? You know, they don't put any notes in the CRM system. Again, because they cannot afford for somebody else to come in and and screw it up for them. Yeah. Yeah. I I worked construction for 17 years, architecture Mm -hmm. and construction for 17 years. And there was a lot of this, that this is my client. I take care of this It's my, yeah, that's right. My is is used often by by the confidant. I, I think the most, the two most I saw in, in, in architecture, engineering, and construction was the expert and the confidence sort of uh-huh. side yeah. by side together. Yeah. You're right. I think those two, actually, I think it's a really good point. So I don't want to skip ahead, but if you look at how they distribute by sub-vertical, which you can talk about like law versus accounting, um, those are the two that dominate the landscape. Mm. So, um, so you are 100% right. And, and when I talk to firms about this, they either say we are over, without even doing the survey or or having any data to support this, say they just know deep down we're overweighted in confidants or we're overweighted in experts. Yeah. But it's very rarely we're overrated, overweighted in one of the other three, which we'll talk about. So. Yeah. Yeah. So the third one is the debater, which I found uh-huh. interesting. I actually didn't recognize this profile in anybody that I saw. So I'm, yeah. I was curious about this one. Yeah. The, so the debater in the um, uh, maybe uncharitable words of their colleagues would be described as a uh, sharp elbowed opinionated know-it-all. So um, that may describe a lot of partners out there, but these yeah. folks, so their, their MO with a client, and, and so these folks, you find a lot of these folks in industries like investment banking, or, you know, you do find a big chunk of them in places like executive search. And I think the reason is that um, these are spaces in which the fees are the same across all the firms. Mm-hmm. The assets that an, an investment banker uh, would represent or be able to sell, you know, uh, on your behalf or um, to you are pretty open, just like an executive search. Like we all have the, every search consultant has the same Rolodex of candidates. It's LinkedIn, right? There's mm-hmm. nobody like, there's nobody where from this is my candidate, right? Right. Um, and so these folks end up getting pulled into a lot of competitive bids. And so you do find this debater approach where their goal is to come in and say, I'm going to box out every, every other player who's competing for the business by telling you, giving you a completely different point of view. Yeah. So I had a search consultant who told me that um, this was his go-to playbook. When he got ca- called into, like, let's say a CFO search for a big, for a big client, um, and he knew that he was up against the other big search firms, which we all know by name, his goal was to come in and basically tell the hiring committee um, that they're thinking about the job spec completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And my goal is to say, like, turn it upside down. And he, he, what he said was, he said, it doesn't always work, but every once in a while it boxes everyone else out. And then they're starting to be skeptical of that because mm-hmm. all the other people competing for the business are telling them the same thing. Right. They're telling you X, I'm telling you Y. Right. And if I can do that, I create white space and I can win. Now, here's the really interesting part of this is that uh, for those listeners who are familiar with the challenger sale, again, I mentioned this a few times, it's our study of business to business sales. That approach it was actually the winning approach in B2B sales. So coming in, reframing the clients, understanding what they need, upending their, you know, breaking their mental model, shaking them by the lapels, shaking them out of their comfort zone, figuratively, not literally. Um, that was a winning approach. Um, but what's interesting, and tipping my mid, we'll get to the results in a moment, these debaters don't do particularly well in professional services. And I think the reason is that if you're selling software, it's all well and good to come yeah. in and reframe the client's world and blow up their conception of what they need. If you're selling yourself and you are the product, it's exhausting for a client. Yeah. We had clients tell us this. They said, I, you know, we had a specific question in our client interviews. We asked about, um, you know, how important is it to you that your partners and your firms you work with push your thinking and challenge you? And, and they all said, absolutely, it's critical. I don't want any, I, I don't want yes people, right? I want people who push me, 
make me a bit uncomfortable, push my thinking a bit. I need a, a thought, thought partner. But they also said, if every time I sit down with them, they're telling me I'm doing it wrong, like, I don't have yeah. time for that. Sometimes I just need yeah. you to do what we know we need, right? Yeah. So that is, uh, that is our debater uh, profile. Yeah. Um, the f- I'm glad I haven't come up against that a lot in my professional career. Yeah. It's, by the way, and to your point, and I think there's a specific point, uh, reason, I think, Julia, maybe for, for I, you're not the first person who said, I, I don't know if I've worked with those folks mm-hmm. or been pitched to by those folks. Those were the smallest percentage overall in professional services. So it began, yeah. I think, because you're selling yourself and it is a relationship focused business that it kind of weeds out people like that. I mean, you do have some, but they're they're not very prevalent. Right. So the fourth one is the realist. Yes. Yeah. So realist is another one that you, it's a unique profile. This is completely unique to professional services. This is the above board, truthful, transparent, um, you know, I say the, the truth teller of, uh, to the client, tell the client what they need to hear, not just what they want to hear. They're yeah. very comfortable saying no, they do not sign up for work that they can't, they know they can't deliver on. They will not sign up for work that the client hasn't allocated um, enough budget for. Mm-hmm. And they will always set proper expectations with their clients. Again, tipping my mitts to the results. Clients think that this approach is, they appreciate it, but it can be a little bit of a downer, right? It's a little bit of a glass half full approach, especially in places like strategy consulting, where, you know, sometimes it's about painting the art of the possible and, and you know, uh, the blue sky kind of thinking or blue ocean strategy uh, type of approach. And so clients can find that sort of, if you will, Debbie Downer kind of a person be a little bit deflating. Now, it it is interesting that you find these people in professional services. And I think the reason is that um, professional services is, it's not like buying software. It's not like buying a medical device, which you can test out. You can see the features and benefits. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can pilot it, right? Um, When you're buying a service from a firm in professional services, you're hiring for expertise. That is not possible to assess until you get into the engagement and you're kind of taking a leap of faith. And I think what these realists understand is that every client out there has been burned in the past by a partner that has overstated their capabilities, a firm that is overpromised and underdelivered, yep. a, a lawyer who's like, who sends surprise invoices after the matter is concluded that are well in excess of the stated budget that you know was articulated way up front. So everyone's had that experience. And so these folks try to set themselves apart by kind of going overboard on the truthfulness. Now, again, this is not to say you don't want every partner to be truthful and transparent and honest, but these realists know that, unfortunately, that is not the case. And so they try to really set themselves apart um, and get clients to understand it. If you really want the honest truth, you come to me. I'm the person never going to tell you, um, uh, you know, uh, never going to spin. I'm always going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear sometimes. So. Um, so the activator is our final profile, yeah. which, spoiler alert, that yep. the Rainmaker <laughs> profile. Um, That's the surprise when we get to that point. So, right. Yeah. So yeah. this is, I, I, I think I am the activator mm-hmm. profile. Like I, and I, so I just, I want to dig into all the pieces of it because I think this is yeah. part of the activator profile is that relationships. It's relationships yes. inside the office with the clients, making new relationships. Yeah. So I, I want to dig into the activator. Yeah. So the activator, uh, to summarize, is I would call them a super connector. So um, they are su- like if you looked at what we had a set of questions around, for example, LinkedIn usage or how a partner engages with clients at a, a firm sponsored event or an industry conference. And activators, they are heavy users of LinkedIn and and, and technologies like Sales Navigator, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, they are purposeful attendees at events, meaning 
most partners will go to an event and it's there, you're there to consume the event, have a nice dinner, have a couple of cocktails. Maybe you meet somebody, um, maybe some business falls into your lap. Great. Um, but activators are there as a business development event, right? So they look at the attendee list. They yep. schedule meetings in advance, coffees, breakfasts, you know, lunches, dinners, side conversations. They're looking at the attendees and they're specifically saying, I want my goal is to meet this person and that person, this other person. Yeah. Now they leave that event with a stack of business cards or connections they've established. And then they try to convert those uh, connections into conversations and then use those conversations to create paying clients. Now, What's also interesting about these conversations is they are very proactive in nature and they're, it's all about bringing clients new ideas. So um, the, that is the way they move somebody from the outer rings of their network, where they're just a connection, just somebody I met at a conference or I connected with on LinkedIn, to into the inner circle where I become a paying client. What I'm trying to do is spot an opportunity for that client, whether that's a regulatory change, it's an M&A event in their space, it's a, a change in the labor market, it's... Um, you know, Gen AI, right? There's lots of different things that are happening, tax court decisions, you name it. Things that clients don't have time to monitor. Exactly. These activators say, yeah, I, I can put myself in a great position, but I don't wait for the phone to ring, but I spot an opportunity to say, Julie, I don't know if you saw this tax court decision in your jurisdiction, but I think it might represent a threat or perhaps actually an opportunity for your firm. I'd love to hop on a Zoom or, mm -hmm. or grab a coffee. Let's talk about it. Now, what's also interesting is these activators will tell you, I'm not looking to bill for that time. But what I am trying to do is pay it forward to yeah. give them a chance to kick the tires on me as an advisor and also earn a bit of goodwill so that when Julie realizes, hey, this is a real need. I want to carve out budget for this. We need to hire a service provider. I've, and even if it's competitive, I've got a leg up because I brought the idea to you and I paid it forward where every other partner is only going to talk to you if you, they can bill for the time. I'm going to pay it forward with a bit of free advice. Mm -hmm. The last thing about activators, which is very uh, interesting, is that unlike the confidant who kind of hoards relationships, these folks are the exact opposite. Yeah. So activators believe that um, in a world of diminished client loyalty, the way that you create stickier relationships is that you got to shift the locus of loyalty from me to we. In other words, I've got to get that client to stop being just loyal to me as a service provider. And my goal is to bring in my colleagues in other practice areas in my firm, because when I do that, that becomes a multi-point kind of multi-threaded connection, which a client will think twice about severing and going with a competitor mm -hmm. when we serve them across so many different functional areas and domain areas. Uh, and so they are actively looking to bring people in. Um, and, you know, what's also interesting, we talk to activators and they'll say, look, I also um, leverage my network as a strategic asset for my clients. So a client, and it's the very best activators you talk to will say that, let's say um, uh, we spoke to, for example, um, a partner in a law firm in the UK, and he told us, he said, I get calls all the time about, you know, uh, hey, Jim, do you know any um, search consultants in our space? Or we're looking for a tax advisor in, you know, Malaysia, or we're looking mm -hmm. for an M&A, you know, but you've always get, you've always, you have a great deep network and you always steer us the right way. And so he will point people to others in the network, say, you got to really talk to Julie. You got to talk to Susan. You got to, you know, here's, here are the people you should talk to. Mm -hmm. And they say, I know I get blowback value for that, even though I don't even do the work, but because I can connect my clients with talented people in my network, that is a huge source of value uh, to my clients. So a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. I, the way I'd summarize it back to your points, the activators really do three things. So um, and one of which I didn't didn't actually mention. The first thing um, they do is they have a real commitment to business development. So um, of the five profiles, these were the only partners who told us that they carve out time to do business development every week, if not every day. Now, it's not a ton of time, right? It's um, 
but it's it's meaningful and purposeful time. Maybe it's a half hour in the morning or the afternoon. They do not let it get scheduled over. And if it does for an urgent client um, uh, uh, engagement, they move it to another time of their calendar. They yeah. always make sure they get to it. It's like going to the gym. If I miss my gym workout in the morning, I go in the afternoon. Um, every other partner in our study said, I do BD when I have time to do BD. When I'm busy, yeah. busy serving clients, right? These folks don't view it that way. Why does that matter? Because we are in a world of lower client loyalty. So you better have a pipeline behind that, those handful of key clients. Quick uh, story on that one. Um, one of the PR firms that participated um, in the research um, told us that one of their um, top rainmakers, a person had been a top rainmaker at their firm for many, many years, um, had a huge global consulting firm as their key client. And leadership had always tried to encourage this rainmaker to broaden his portfolio of clients to not be so single, you know, exposed to a single client. And every time they tried to do it and they tried to feed them other opportunities, they said, no, 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 I'm too busy serving these guys. You know, they need me for an event. They need me on site. They need me to go meet with the leadership team. Never had time to create a pipeline behind that one key client. And then uh, just this year, that key client put the work out to bid and this PR firm lost the business. That guy went from their top rainmaker for probably 15 years to the lowest performing partner in the firm overnight. Yeah. He had nothing, nothing to fall back on. So that's the first thing we call it. Uh, this is the three pillars of Actor. The first one is commit to business development. The second one is connect. And we talked about this before. Um, building your network at, both internally and externally as a strategic asset to be leveraged, right? They understand that um, a multi-threaded, a multi-point connection with a client is way stronger, especially in the current buying environment, than a single-threaded relationship. So bring mm -hmm. your partners in, bring your colleagues in. Create a high tensile strength, multi-point connection web with your clients, and that will help you weather um, weather the storm. Because again, those clients are going to think twice about pulling up the 10 stakes and leaving. Mm -hmm. And then the last pillar, uh, so that's so we got commit, connect, and the last one is create. So I mentioned this before, but activators know that in today's world where clients want to bid out the work, force you to go through RFPs, competitive pursuits, et cetera, and, and they want to put you in a box and they want to assume like you're all the same. Who's going to cut us the best price possible for this engagement? Um, what they understand is that in that world, way better to create demand than to react to demand. So mm -hmm. I need to be out in front of this. I need to bring my clients' ideas, not wait for the phone to ring, because doing so allows me to shape the RFP if there's going to be one, but at least shape the client's understanding of what they need in a way that feeds to me as the best service provider for their needs. Mm -hmm. So. So a couple of things when you were talking about the activator, my first thought was in order for each and every firm to have activators, yeah. we need to look at how people are compensated for the work they bring in and the clients yeah. have. Because yeah. I think our compensation plans and schedules force people into that that confidant role and that these are mine. I don't want to share the, you know, the the you know uh, promotions or or money or bonuses or whatever that come with ha keeping this client. Yeah. yeah, you're totally right. In fact, you know, I should say I kind of skipped a little bit of the punchline. We already said the activators win, but just to put a finer point on that, when we ran a regression analysis, which we talk about in the article, we looked at if you put, for lack of a better description, if you put these five profiles into a horse race, and you said, let me take the average performing partner and let's see what would happen if they chose to lean harder into any of those five approaches. Four of those five um, realist debaters, um, uh, confidants, and experts actually have a negative correlation with business development performance. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, the more a you know your average partner leans into those approaches, the worse they do uh, relative to what they could potentially do. 
they think they're stepping on the gas, but they're actually stepping on the brakes on their own business development. Only mm -hmm. one, it was the activator that had a positive straight line statistical correlation with performance to really get down to brass tacks. If you took the average partner and they went from not very good to very good on the activator dimensions, they could lift their own personal revenue generation by 32%, up to 32%. So it's a big, mm -hmm. big change. Now, you hit on, it's so interesting to me because when I talk to firms, um, you know, we, and we show them the results. More often than not, they say exactly what you just did, which is uh, they look at, you know, I show them the results and they're overweighted, let's say in confidants or maybe in experts, which is where most firms end up being overweighted. Um, and almost always the, the chair or the, you know, the CBDO or, you know, the managing partner will say, we did this to ourselves. Like there, this is not just happenstance that people all went into this confidant approach. If you look at our comp plan, if you look at who we hold up and we celebrate, you yep. look at the lateral hires we're bringing in, the people we put on a pedestal, we shine a bright, we put their name in lights. Like every signal that our younger uh, associates and, and income partners and, and junior partners get is this is the way to make it. Yep. And so, you know, what was interesting is across these 23 firms, there were a handful where they had a spike in activators which really kind of set them apart from their peers overall, but also in their sub-segment. And so we spent a lot of time with those leaders trying to figure out like, how did this happen, right? Because you're doing something differently. And what we found was um, that they're kind of, they're, that Activator is not just about partner skills, it's about firm capabilities yep. and creating the right environment. So the first thing to your point is, um, you've got to have the right, both monetary uh, incentives and non-monetary reward and recognition programs that signal to partners, here's what we care about, right? Yep. We care about cross-sell. We care about collaboration. We care about um, network building. We care about purposeful use of technologies like LinkedIn or events or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. We care about everyone carving out and protecting time uh, for BD. Um, you've also got to have the right training and coaching programs, right, that teach partners how to do this stuff. And here's the thing. Almost every one of those activator firms told us, we don't wait till people make partner to teach them how to do business development. That's right. actually in many respects too late. What you want to do is start investing in them at the associate level. Because if you think about stuff activators do, commitment to BD, network building, being a proactive rather than reactive um, business developer, these are not things you need to wait till you make partner, just muscles you need to wait to develop. You can start right. developing them early. And then the last thing they would talk about um, was enabling an activator approach. So that is the way that you equip partners with technology or the way that you support them with the BD team or with uh, thought leadership or the way you structure your events program um, and support partners to turn those events into real BD opportunities. Right. Like you got to create kind of a nest for your, uh, for your activators. So they're not swimming against the system, but rather they're supported by the system. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the story actually is that, again, it's you could take a partner in almost any other firm and you drop them into one of these activator firms where they're supported and all the nudges they're getting tell them to do things one way, not the other. And the outcome can be quite different. So again, it is a story of individuals, but it's also a story of uh, firm leadership and firm yeah. capabilities. You, you quite succinctly asked my next question, which was, <laughs> you know, if we need more activators in our companies, how yeah. do we start creating them and giving them frameworks to become activators? I want to go back to one thing that you talked about, about when it comes to BD, that the activators schedule it and they, yeah. they, they dedicate a certain amount of time. Yeah. And you didn't say how much time they dedicated, but research shows that mm -hmm. about six hours a week is mm -hmm. the sweet spot for business yeah. development and or network networking and business development at the, you know, in conjunction. Mm -hmm. And when I 
And giving keynotes, and I talk about this magical six-hour number, people are like, I don't have six hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the activator reframes what is networking and what yes. is business development yeah. as a very holistic part of the job you're already doing. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and I, think, um, I think sometimes partners get into this mode of like, okay, I'm going to schedule an hour a day or however much time a day to do my BD. And it's that's pitching for business time, right? Or it's going and find, responding to RFPs or what have you. But but it's a very, as you said, it's a very holistic understanding of what is BD. So that yeah. hour might be spent um, following up on all the stack of business cards you collate, collect at the last conference. It right. might be um, scrolling the news to look at, are there events here that I could bring to one of my clients and say, this is an opportunity for us to talk and maybe potentially do business together. Uh, there was a partner we um, interviewed, a longtime partner, managing partner, actually, of a, uh, an Asian, uh, Asian off office of a big global law firm. And he told us and his kind of specialty area was um, patent and trademark kind of uh, law within, um, within the food uh, industry. Uh, and so he said um, he only ever had three things on his desk uh, at any given time. The first thing he had was his checklist. Here are the things I'm going to do today in, in the, the BD things, here are the client things. So there's your commit piece, right? Mm -hmm. This is, I develop a metronomic cadence. I don't let BD fall by the wayside. I am always doing it. The second thing he had, he always had LinkedIn open on this. Yeah. Never close it, right? Always had it open. I never close mine. Never close it, right? That's how we got connected, I think. So yeah. And then the last thing he had was on his desk, the stack of today's news in the food industry. Yep. And he's going through it and he's carving out time and saying, where is there some new, like, is there a firm that's created a new innovation? Have they patented mm -hmm. that? Um, should I reach out? Is that an opportunity for having a conversation? Yep. Um, and so that to me was really interesting because you got that commit, that the commit piece, the checklist, you got the connect, which is your LinkedIn and you got your create, yeah. which is that those industry events. So that was a simple kind of way to think about that activator playbook, but you're quite right. It's not, now, if you look at, if you look at average partners, what they tend to do, first of all, their time is way overweighted to delivering work versus mm -hmm. um, BD. Yeah. And the reason is they believe delivering great work is BD, right? That means if I deliver great work, I'm automatically going to get the next piece of business. Yeah. So that's, and the other thing is activators are equally weighted. Not they're, they're more evenly balanced in terms of BD versus execution time. But also, if you look at their BD time, they're more evenly weighted across new versus existing client opportunities. Yeah. Now, if you look at it, most other partners are way overweighted to existing clients, right? I've already got this yep. relationship. I'm just going to overinvest in time, shower them with service and client centricity and, um, uh, you know, all kinds of you know, great work. And then they'll just hire me automatically. But again, that, that approach may have worked 10, 20 years ago. You know, maybe we would have seen the expert or the confidant was the winning approach. But today, the client environment is really changing. And look, my, my uh, guidance for partners is, you know, if you're a top rainmaker, if you're a top performer, and you don't see yourself as an activator, that's okay. There are top performers who are in the other profiles for sure. But I think it's also a recognition. We all agree the client buying environment today is different from how it was 10 or 20 years ago. And if you buy the proposition that the world is changing, then by definition, you have to evolve your approach. What worked yesterday is not going to work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage partners to think about this as not changing everything about who you are and what you do, but rather um, uh, building and developing some new tools to put in your BD tool, tool belt. Keep doing the stuff that made you great, but understand as the title of the, um, the well-known book goes, what got you here is not going to get you there. And you got to mm -hmm. keep stepping on the gas and evolving your own approach. Yeah. Matt, this was amazing. Thank you so much for taking so much time to Thank talk with us about this. 
Um, if people want to learn more about you and learn more, more about what you and your partners do at your company, where where should they um, look to find you or go to find you? Yeah. Uh, so our company website is uh, dcminsights.com. Um, and that provides an overview of kind of who we are, what we do. Um, uh, we have offerings, as I mentioned, we kind of cut our teeth in business to business sales. We do still do a lot of business to business sales support, but also what we do to help partners and firms on this activator journey. So you can learn all about us and maybe more than you wish to know on, on that site. Um, and I'll put a, for those people who have a Harvard Business Review subscription, I'll put a link to this article in the show notes as well. Um, because it's it's a fascinating article as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I yeah. should mention, by the way, I, I love connecting with folks who've um, heard me on a podcast or show like this. So if you did, uh, send me a LinkedIn invite. Um, uh, Juliet, Julie and I are very active on LinkedIn. I am. Um, yeah. And I, I know I'd love to connect with your listeners. If you have a follow-up question, hit me up and happy to continue the dialogue. Great. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Take care. All right. So there you have it. Want to be a rainmaker? or want to nurture them within your office, start focusing on the three C's. Commit, connect, and create. Make time for business development every day, and if not every day, every week. Become a heavy user of LinkedIn, not just for connecting, but for commenting and creating your own content. Start educating your clients. Don't wait for the phone to ring or for them to reach out when they need help. Anticipate their needs and how you can be a source of information. And Convert those connections into conversations. All things that we have talked about on this podcast are still down and backed by research. And you know how much I fucking love to say the research suggests. Take a drink. And with that, we are now on to the drink of the week. And it is, based off of the threes commit, connect, and create, it is the Triple C Welcome Cocktail. And it's from Taste and Tipple. Here's what you're going to need. A quarter ounce of cinnamon syrup. We've covered how to make simple syrup before and flavored simple syrup before on this podcast. So a quarter ounce of cinnamon syrup, two to three dashes of cardamom bitters, one ounce of cognac, four ounces of chilled sparkling wine, and grapefruit twist for a garnish. So I think the three C's are going to end up being cinnamon, cardamom, and cognac. I think that's the three C's. Anyways. Pour cinnamon syrup into a champagne flute, add two to three dashes of cardamom bitters, add the cognac, carefully top with sparkling wine. You know, it could be four C's if you use kava. Okay, I'm getting off. All right, anyways, sparkling wine and garnish with a grapefruit twist. Okay? All right, friends, that's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Also, please remember to share the podcast to help it reach a larger audience. If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can find me on LinkedIn at JulieBrownBD. Just let me know where you found me when you reach out. And I am Julie Brown underscore BD on the Instagram, or you can just pop on over to my website, juliebrownbd.com. Until next week, cheers. Cheers.